Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. Today my guest, once again, is Dr. Kristen Fellows. I recently heard her lecture on the topic of scoping. It was fantastic, but I suddenly realized that was a topic that we've never talked about on this podcast. So I asked her if she would be willing to join me so we could discuss this important topic and give it the attention it deserves. Of course, she was kind enough to agree. So I hope you're ready for a deep dive because she's going to cover all the basics of scoping. So without any further ado, Dr. Kristen Fellows. Hello, Dr. Fellows. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, today we're going to talk about scoping, which um, I guess it was in January, you and uh, Josh Lawler presented on scoping. And when I saw it, I thought, how are you going to fill two hours worth of scoping information? <laughs> and by the time the two hours was over, it felt like we were just kind of cracking the surface. So it's yeah. true that there's a lot to know about scoping. Um, and it's unfortunately one of those things we seem to just kind of take for granted. And we just say, well, just scope the patient, scope the patient. But Really, there's a lot that goes into it, a lot of information that can be pulled out of it. So we'll see how much information we can pull out today in an hour and give people some things to think about. So um, let's start off at the beginning. Well, I'll start with this simple question. What kind of scope do you use or what kind of scope do you like to use? So I prefer the Delta T. Um, that's the one that I use the most often. I like the way that it glides. And I like, <clears throat> excuse me, I like how clean it reads. Um, I was using another scope and what I, found, what I found was it wasn't reading as clean as the Delta T and I would actually get behind schedule because I was spending so much time trying to interpret my scope. And when I switched to the Delta T, it became much easier to pick out those breaks. So that's been my favorite. Um, I actually do not have a porcelain scope. The reason I never bought one early on was I felt like it was too heavy. And so that alone kept me away from it. I have used other people's porcelain scopes and I do like the way that that reads. I feel like it reads clean as well. And if I am scoping correctly, which means I'm using both of my hands to run the scope, then it's not such a big deal for, you know, to, to have it be heavy. And so it's actually something that I, I have thought about purchasing if I can find a good one. Yeah, I have a, I have two porcelains and a Delta T. Um, the, my first porcelain is a really old porcelain I got from an old timer who was a patient of mine. Um, and so kind of a hand-me-down. Um, the other one is a porcelain, but it was created, this is a name people, some old older people will remember, but it was created by B&G Electronics, which was Dr. Burr and uh, Bob Gregory created these for a period probably about 20 years ago. Um, and so I have one of those. So it looks like an old scope, but it's actually only about 20 years old. Um, and then I have a Delta T. And they're all different in their own right. Um, sometimes I like the weight and sometimes I like it light. Um, probably the biggest thing I notice is the difference in how the probes move. Because on the porcelains, when you loosen the nut, they angle in. So like when you're doing a kid who's got a smaller neck, it angles in and stays on their neck. Whereas the Delta T, they just kind of slide closer to each other. Yeah. So there's a little Straight bit difference and there. And so I find that yeah. they each have their strength and weakness. Mm -hmm. yeah. It is nice to have options to grab different ones for different patients. That's why I like it. Unfortunately, all three of them are broken right now. So now I got to get some work oh, done. No. I have the same situation. So I'm bringing my Delta T back and forth from the office to home. <laughs> yeah, that's the one bad thing is good technology, fragile, breaks easy. Um, so let's talk about, well, we'll start with the science, the, uh, it's called the cutaneous axon reflex. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that and how we, how the scope even works and what basis it uses. I knew that you were going to start with this question. <laughs> when I spoke at the seminar, I had one slide on the cutaneous axon reflex. So I do not pretend to be an expert at the science, but I pulled two quotations that I thought explained it pretty well. And so for our purposes here today, I'll simply read those two quotations. One is from Dr. David Geary, and the other is from Dr. Gregory Plogger in his textbook. And I think putting the two together, it explains it pretty well. But um, I also believe that you can comment a little bit more in detail on that. So I'll let you take it away after this. 
what Dr. David Geary says is the inflamed disc does not directly cause the skin heat reading. So that's in the past how sometimes um, what we're seeing on the nervoscope has been explained, but it's not quite that simple. So he says, rather, it indirectly engages the posterior primary rami and the recurrent meningeal nerve that initiates via the ANS a release of substance P and calcitonin gene-related peptide, which are inflammatory mediators that follow the respective or clinically involved spinal nerve in a retrograde manner to the skin periphery, thus our nervoscope reading. Then in Dr. Gregory Plogger's textbook on page 95, he says the recurrent meningeal nerve innervates the articular capsule, the PLL, and the annulus. It has mixed sensory and sympathetic components in manifesta manifestations. Antidromic stimulation, propagation of an impulse in a reverse direction of the dorsal root ganglion can release skin temperature, can raise the skin temperature. The above has been termed the cutaneous axon reflex. So to me, that makes sense. But like I said, I know that you can probably go into a little bit more detail on that yourself. The, um, the, so the recurrent meningeal nerve is the reason why um, the spinous process will have point tenderness because it comes out and just loops right around. And so the reason why we can, why we get a scope reading, we see the reading and then we go over and we poke on that vertebra and we go, oh, there's tenderness there, is largely due to the recurrent meningeal nerve. However, there's another component. So it says that it produces substance P and um, calcitonin gene-related peptide. Well, I knew substance P is primarily a nociceptive chemical, right. but I didn't know what calcitonin gene-related peptide was, so I had to look that one up. And what's interesting about it is when it comes from the ventral horn of the spinal cord, it's actually associated with peripheral nerve regeneration, which is kind of interesting. Wow. However, yeah. mostly what we're getting is from the dorsal horn. What it does... The dorsal side, produces, when it produces it, it's associated with a combination of nociception and vasodilation. So it is the link between the scope reading and the, and the tenderness that occurs um, because of what it does. So um, it's that release. So we, basically, you've got a subluxation impinging the recurrent meningeal nerve, causing a release in substance P and calcitonin gene-related peptide which then causes vasodilation, which is what the scope can read, and also causes point tenderness, which we can get with palpation. And that's how all the pieces tie together. Very good. Thank you for that. Um, okay, so let's talk about the protocol, because there is a technique to scoping correctly. Um, and this is something we often, I think, we do take for granted, and we don't really talk about, but making sure that we're scoping properly so that our our, our, when we get a break, we know it's a truly a break. Um, we're not getting artificial heat readings that probably aren't even like all that stuff. So what is the proper approach for scoping to make sure that we're getting valid measurements? That is a huge question. Um, I will start just with the way that I do my glide and we'll go from there. So the first thing that I want to see is a general pattern. And I feel like sometimes it's hard to look at both the overall pattern as far as all of the heat swings from top to bottom. At the same time, you're looking for breaks. Maybe for some people that's easier, but I do like to take one run through the spine just looking at the overall pattern. So if you go from T5 up to occiput and then you go from the occiput all the way down to S5 in one sweeping motion, you can kind of start to get an idea of what the general pattern looks like. For instance, are you seeing, you know, 20 point reading up at C1 and it hangs out over to that right side all the way down? And are you looking at a cord pressure? You know, so um, that could be, you know, one indication that we have cord pressure. So first of all, I like to just get a general sense of the, the overall reading. Then I personally like to go from T10 all the way down to S5. And I start there because that's kind of the split around that T9, T10 area where we either have narrow probes or wider probes so that we can pick up on that nerve interference depending on the anatomy. So from T9, 10 down to S5, we're keeping our probe width more narrow. So I like to run it from that area all the way down. And I like to start by analyzing the lower part of the spine. And I think the reason I like to really hone in on that, there are a couple reasons. Um, one uh, is, is just kind of a spatial thing. I'm sitting behind the patient and I feel like 
the rest of the world is closed off. It helps me get into a state of present time consciousness. And I'm so honed in on that patient's spine um, versus standing up and having all these other distractions around the room come into my periphery. So I like to start with it also because I think of the spine from a foundational standpoint. And so I like to analyze the spine from the bottom up. So once I get that initial overall reading, I start with T10 all the way down to S5 and then hone in on scoping the pelvis in particular. Again, keeping my probe width narrow. So um, after I've done that, and we can come back to that and go into a little bit more detail about how to fully scope the pelvis. After I've done that piece and I have that in my mind, then I'll go from about T5 down to T9 or 10, again, going with downward strokes, just like I did from T10 down to S5. And then I do a little bit of overlap. So after that, I will come using you know upward strokes and um, I'm going to be having a, a wider probe width when I go from T9 all the way up to the occiput. So I'll then scope in that upward direction. And if I am looking at differences in, in speed, for instance, we're going to use a, a slower speed in the upper part of the spine. We're going to be using a little faster speed in the lower part of the spine. So if we want to get really technical about it, I would say it's three seconds per segment in the upper part of the spine versus two seconds per segment in the lower part of the spine. And it's not something that we need to memorize. If I were to just ask you, is that a break at C3 or is it at C4, you would just find out that you have to run that a little bit slower to differentiate that because those nerves are so much closer together. So um, that's something to, to consider as well. I'll let you comment before I move on. Yeah, there are some times like in the, uh, in the cervicals, when I will go painfully slow, yes. like especially if the SPs are really close together, I want to really try to pinpoint where it is. And after doing it, I might be just like super slowly coming up there just to try to get a good idea of exactly where it's happening. Especially. So it's if, not a hard and fast rule. <laughs> right. Especially if they have a really lordotic curve, you know, versus someone who has a more kyphotic curve, it's, it, it'll be a little bit tighter of a reading, just like a really hyper lordotic curve in the lower spine. Yeah, and then there's there's also the process of how we mark it. So you're scoping yes. and then you see a, you see a break. Mm -hmm. Where do you mark the break? So if you're scoping in a downward direction, you're going to mark it just a little bit above your probe because of the reaction time versus if you're running your scope in an upward direction, you'll make your mark a little bit below the probe again due to your reaction time in that opposite direction. But then you're also considering which side of the spine you mark the break on. So initially when I was first in practice, I would always mark my break on the right side. And I sometimes would have a patient say, why are you always marking on the right side? Are all my problems on the right side? And my response was, no, I'm just right-handed. But that's not the proper way to do it. So I have since changed, and I'm actually looking at the direction of the break. And I just want to make the distinction between a heat swing and the direction of the break. So when we see a heat swing, we're talking about a, a broad, you know, more continual swing of that needle on the scope versus a break is just a very quick deflection back and forth. And so you could have a right heat swing. So let's say the needle is swinging to the right of zero, that's heat to the right, but then the direction of the needle could break to the left within that right heat swing. So I am marking that on the left side of the patient's spine because the direction of the break was on the left. And this is particularly helpful if you are doing an immediate post check, for instance, because sometimes the direction of the break will change right after you've adjusted that patient. Um, you might see, you know, no break at all. Or what I found a lot of the time is if I check right away, I'll often see a reversal of the direction of the break. And then even checking it one or two minutes later, 
I'll see that break just completely go away. So I always like to know which side that's breaking on. Yeah. Yeah. I, I similar to what you did um, for a while, I would hold my pen in my mouth, but I bit through too many <laughs> pens that way. So then what I started doing is I would hold my pen between my little finger and my ring finger while I was scoping. And it became really easy that without even picking up the scope, I could just mark it on the right hand side using my finger. And so I would always yeah. mark them on the right because it was just right there. And then same thing. I was like, you know what? I kind of need to know which side it's on. And patients, they, they, they're like, why are all my problems on the right? And I'm like, they're not. I'm just being lazy. So I was like, all right. I would I would just hold the pen and be like, okay, use the use the right hand for the scope, left hand for the pen, and mark the appropriate side. So, yes. yeah, I've cleaned that up too. <laughs> Great. And one of the things that I like to do too is – Go, go ahead. Sorry. Um, one of the things that I like to do as well is I will actually use my pencil to write the level that I got that break at so that by the time I'm done with my scope, you know, so as I go, I'm also counting and deciding which level that's at. So I'll, I'll make all my marks. I'll make my horizontal lines for the scope break. Then I count and I get the level that it's correlating to. And again, we can talk about how we figured that out. Um, but then I'll go in and finish with motion palpation, you know, before I decide where the subluxation actually is and looking at my film that I always have hanging up. But I like to actually write the number on the patient's skin so that I don't have to keep track of all of that in my head. It just helps me put it all together and put it in my notes in the computer. Yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. I, I discovered that early in practice that more information is better because there comes a time you look back and you're like, I wish I really would have written that down <laughs> because it would have been helpful. Yeah. So, yeah, I find you can never have too much info if you think it might be relevant to get that. Um, but what I was going to say is right. the particular heat swing you described where it's swinging to the right and then deflects to the left, that's probably the hardest one to pick up. Um, and I think a lot of people miss that one. It's a little easier when it's going right and then deflects right. Or if there's no heat swing and it's just suddenly a deflection, that's pretty easy. But when it's swinging out and you're already kind of in this mode and then it deflects back on you, it's really hard to recognize it. Even though it deflected on the right and you're on the right side of the meter, it's still a left deflection because it deflected that way. So that's a good one to point out that we have to really be careful to look for those. Yes. And in my notes, I mark... I mark, you know, the intensity using a plus or minus. So for instance, I will say the scope breaks right at C1 at plus 10, and that means it was to the right of zero. Or I might say the scope breaks right at minus 10, and that means that it was at the 10-point mark, but to the left of zero, and it was breaking right at that level. So especially when I have those tougher cases where I want to make sure that I'm not doing one adjustment too many or we'll run into some trouble. I'm keeping track of those things. I'm writing that down in my notes so that I can always go back to that. And I look at what the initial scope reading looked like at the beginning of that last visit and what the post check looked like at the end of that last visit. And now what my initial reading is looking like on my initial check on that day. And is that leading me to maybe leaving that segment alone, leaving everything alone? That's always a big question and a great way that our scope can help us out. Yeah. Well, and then as we're scoping too, sometimes interpreting what, when we get a mark, we get a, a break, knowing what, segment we're actually looking at can be a little bit of a challenge and that changes throughout the spine. So I have a guide here if we need it, but let's, let's talk a little bit about how, how we get different readings at different places for different yes. segments. Yes. So um, the occiput will typically break right at the level of occiput and then C1 will be just about a quarter of an inch below the occiput. When we get to C2 through T3, we're going to generally see that break right underneath the spinous. Then when we get to T4, it should be right at the level of the spinous. 
When we move down to T5 through T9, we're going to see that at the interspinous space above the vertebra in question. Then when we get to T10 through T12, we'll tend to see that right at the level of the spinous. And then when we're in the lumbar region, we'll tend to get the break in the lower one third of the spinous process. Unless we're talking about, you know, like an inferior fifth, which we can touch on in a little bit. There are some special circumstances there. Um, and then if we're talking about the SI joints, we'll tend to get that at S1, S2, or S3, but not lower than that because, as many of you know, the SI joints end right around S3. So if it's at S4 or S5, we're probably not looking at an SI joint problem. Um, but the sacral segments will break right at the level of the tubercle. And so that gives us an area, right? One of the purposes of the scope is to pinpoint an area, but that does not alone tell us where our subluxation is. Um, that's not using the whole Gonstead system. And so it's important that we use where we get our scope break as our starting hypothesis. That's the way I like to think of it. And then I'll take a look at my film. So let's say I get a break and it's right at the interspinous space above T9. So I'm going to look at my film and what if I see it really open on the lateral at T10? Then I'm going to say to myself, I wonder if this really is T9, is it maybe T10? And so now I'm going to go in and I'm going to statically palpate. I'm going to be feeling for edema. I'm going to motion palpate. I might find that T9 actually feels hypermobile and T10 is where I'm getting my motion restriction. So we can have a break that correlates with a vertebra, but the actual subluxation could be one or two segments above that or one or two segments below that. So we have to use our full Gonstead analysis to be able to draw that final conclusion as to where the actual subluxation is. So it's not as simple as running our scope quickly down someone's spine one time, making some lines where we think we see a break, which is another point. You know, you really have to run it over that same area about three times to get rid of something that's not a true break. So we can have heat that's due to soft tissue injury, due to muscle injury, ligament injury, things like that. But that true break will come out when you run it through more than one time. So we're not going to run our scope quickly down someone's spine one time, make some marks where we see the breaks, bring them over to the table, slap our hand right where we got that line. Again, because with skin tissue, that line could have shifted up or down one segment, two segments, even three on someone who's older and they have saggier skin. So we need to make sure we're counting uh, before we move them over to the table when they're still sitting in the chair and counting again up or down or both once we get them to the table. So you can't just slap your hand where you saw that line and then adjust according to the listing that you put on the film a year ago, right? So there's so much more that goes into it. And if that's right. how we're practicing chiropractic, that is not using the Gonstead system. Yeah, you know, I probably should have started there. <laughs> the <laughs> fact that we would never just scope and adjust any more than we would right. look at an x-ray and adjust it. Um, or pretty much any other thing out of context, but that they all go together. And as you were saying that, I was even thinking, you know, a lot of people put up YouTube videos. And when I see YouTube videos, a lot of them scope too fast. Yes. Um, but the other thing I see is that, and I don't know if this is really what they're doing, but the way they'll put the video together, it looks like they scope and then they adjust and they leave out the yes. x-ray portion or they might leave out the palpation. Right. And it, right. it gives the patient or somebody watching the impression that they're just scoping and adjusting. And really, we, if those other components are there, they need to be added in so that everyone can see that it's an entire system with right. every step making a new decision or confirming the decision that was already made. And That's right. Yeah, so I'm glad you brought that up. And by the way, you totally aced that test um, because, <laughs> because without a guide, you got it all right while I'm looking at the guide to the side. <laughs> so very good. <laughs> One of the things, too, I'll bring up along those same lines, um, this is probably the, the scope mistake that I struggled with the most, and that is varying the glide speed. And so what I found and what I think a lot of the mm -hmm. students out there might find is if you're getting really frustrated with interpreting your scope, if you feel like it's too hard to read, it's not very clean, or you're getting like nine breaks every time you check someone, then what's probably happening is you're starting and stopping too much. And so you need to take a greater vertical space 
of running your scope continually versus, you know, taking a, maybe a little four inch space where you're, you know, just continually starting and stopping, starting and stopping. Now you might be marking breaks where it's actually just a heat swing. And that's something I had to train myself in is just to keep going through a longer width. And even if I have to repeat that several more times, it's going to be more accurate. Yes. Yeah. Yep. I do see that mistake happening a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, since I'm thinking about it, we might be jumping ahead here, but let's just talk about it because I'm thinking about it. <laughs> let's okay. do um, the whole idea of tipping the scope. This is something that just came up this week. And I realized yeah. that I think those of us who have practiced longer probably tip the scope a lot more frequently than a lot of the younger people know that we do. Um, so you're because Danny about... O'Hara, when I talked to him in his interview, talked about how cambering. Yep. Yes. Yeah, so the, the Denny O'Hara talked about how the DRG ramps up, and after over a period of time, it then ramps up the contralateral side, and by doing that, it makes the reading disappear, even though the segment is highly irritated. And so, knowing that if somebody is more chronic, if they've had it a longer time, we are more likely, if especially if you see it on X-ray, you're thinking there's something happening there, and then you scope it yeah. and get no reading. Before we conclude that there's nothing happening, we would camber the scope and take a tip and see if maybe when we compare it to the level above we're actually getting, um, there's actually a reading that's just so amped up that it's made the reading disappear. Exactly. I just saw that a couple of days ago at a C5, you know, everything else was pointing to that. You know, I, I took flexion extension films. My palpation was telling me that everything was making sense, but I had no scope break there. And as soon as I tipped it, there it was. So that can be really helpful. And, you know, the reason for that is the scope is a temperature differential. So it's telling us if there's a difference, like you were saying, from one side compared to the other. But what if it's the same on both sides? The only way we're going to see that come out is by tipping it. Yeah. So the cambering of the scope is a, is a big deal that I think, um, especially if you're not finding something that you think should be there, before you conclude there's nothing there for sure, tip the scope and see if it shows up comparing it above or below. Uh, I think right. that happens a lot. Um, mm -hmm. And then let's talk about what happens with the uh, inferior fifth and how that affects things. Okay. Sure. So when we have a situation where we have an inferior fifth, we may not be getting that scope break in the lower one third of the L5 spinous process. And the reason for that is the IVF and the nerve is in the same place, but it's not in the same place in relation to the spinous process of L5. So that spinous process has dropped down so far inferior that now we're actually getting the break at the level of the nerve, right? So we're getting the break above the L5 spinous process. And this can be really dangerous if you're not recognizing it because now you think you have an L4 subluxation. And that's where everything else again needs to come into play. So if you are getting that break and it's in the lower part of the L4 spinous process, but you have a really inferior fifth on that x-ray, you maybe motion palpate both of those. And it really seems clear that it's coming from your L5. If you adjust L4 because your break was textbook more in line with the L4 spinous process, the patient is not going to like you very much on that next visit. So it's really important to make sure, again, that we're using all the information. I may or may not be speaking from experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I'm not agreeing from experience either. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, they, uh, hopefully people are marking um, inferior fifths when they see them because with an inferior fifth, you have to get a lot more lift to get it set up in there. If you come in yes. too flat on inferior fifth, you're going to jam it anyway. So now you've got a problem with your diagnosis side. You've got a problem on your adjusting side. You're just going to have fits with this thing and all because you yeah. didn't recognize it, how inferior it was and that it messed up your scope reading and then it messed up how you did the adjustment. So you got to make sure you lift those inferiors really high. Right. 
That's one of the questions that I'll often ask students when they share x-rays and they say, I'm, I'm on L5, it's not getting better. And my first question is, are you lifting that thing? <laughs> you know, because that's going to be so important. And I'll use my hands like this yeah. and say, you know, that's inferior. You just go straight in. What'd you just do? You made it more inferior. And that's a huge problem. And so I'll tell them, you know, not even that much P to A at the beginning, but just shoot for the moon. Just lift that sucker up and you're going to find that the patient gets a lot better. So it is important. Mark that on your film and really note that. Yeah, so this is something that comes up at life all the time, and I have to take a moment to explain to people, so I'll say it here too, that a lot of times when we talk about line of drive, people think linear line, and none of yeah. the joints are flat surfaces. They all have a, some amount of concavity to them. So the true line of drive is an art line of drive. And so like an L5, an inferior L5, you might start by lifting I to S, but by the very end, you might actually be going S to I. It's possible. And yeah. so um, a lot of people, if they aren't thinking about that, they're thinking, well, if I started really I to S, I should be finishing really I to S, but that's not true. You're going to jam into the L4 above it. And so you have to lift it to get over yes. the top and have that arced motion. So I tend to spend a lot of time drawing pictures going, look, arced motion, arched surface. That's how it works. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, that's a little, a little adjusting tip thrown into the scoping conversation. Um, let me see what we're at here. Uh, okay, let's talk about the SI joints. What happens when okay. we scope down in there before we get? Okay, so when we're scoping the pelvis in general, again, the probes are closer together. And the first thing I'll do is run my scope all the way down, you know, L4, L5, all the way down to S5 through the midline. So the tubercles are between the probes. And I will use my pencil to mark a little horizontal line right at the level of my break and I'll mark that right over the tubercle. So let's say we get a break to the right at S3. I'll make a mark, a horizontal line over the S3 tubercle. But now because I had a right break, and again, I'm not talking about the heat. The heat, it could be to the right of zero or the left of zero. If I get a break to the right, now I'm going to go to the right SI joint. And now my probes are on either side of the right SI joint and I'm gliding down through the right SI joint. And I'm looking again for a break. And if I get another break at that same level at S3, now I can draw a conclusion. Now I can have a hypothesis to work from. So I want to look at the direction of the break when I run it through that SI joint on the right side. And if I'm getting a break also to the right, that means that it's pointing toward a possible right ilium subluxation. But if I get a right break at S3 when I run it down the midline, and then I run it down through the right SI joint, and now I get a left break at the level of S3, that's pointing to a possible sacrum subluxation. Now, we could be talking about just lifting that sacral, sacral segment up. If I'm getting it at S1, I might be, you know, just looking at a BP sacrum, or I might be looking at a rotated sacrum where the entire sacrum as a whole is rotated, um, you know, with the SI joint. Or I might be looking at an S3 specific sacral segment issue. If I'm getting my breaks at the level of S4 or S5, now we are talking about an instance where we no longer have an SI joint, right? So you doctors know this, but I'll just hold this up for students. Hopefully this is helpful. If you look at those black marks, you can see that S1, 2, and S3 correspond to the SI joint, but our SI joint ends here. So if we're getting a break at S4 or S5, we're no longer talking about an SI joint. And in this case, we're probably looking at a sacral segment subluxation, which I know Dr. Michael Bounty has taught on and spoken on even in your podcast. So then we're going to use motion palpation, static palpation, x-ray, gait analysis, all of it to determine exactly how that sacral segment is sitting. But even before I look at the direction of the break, as I run the scope down through the midline of the pelvis, I am noting the side of the heat. And so if I see that I'm running my scope down the midline and there's a big heat swing over to the left, the first thought that I have is, okay, is that maybe a left exilium? The SI joint is gapped open in that case, creating more heat off to that side. But if I see that I have a, a big heat swing over to the left and I look at the patient's film, 
and I see that that's the IN side, then my next thought is, I wonder if maybe we have a, a posteriorly rotated sacrum on that left side, again, creating more heat where that left SI joint is gapped open. Or the third thought that I might have, if I see the heat really low in the pelvis, is we might even have an acetabulum problem on that side. That's one of the things that Dr. Michael Bounty has spoken on, is that we'll get a lot of heat really low in the pelvis when it's an acetabulum problem. So I do consider just in general where that heat is as well. And then another point is you might get a break at S3, but that's from a cord pressure way up top in the spine. So it just throws, you know, one other thing in there that you have to think about and looking at that all over pattern. And you could have a rotated sacrum that is looking like a cord pressure because there's heat all the way up the spine. And so it looks like maybe you need to be on an upper cervical, but actually if you just take care of that rotated sacrum, you're not going to have that high heat all the way up that side on the spine. You're going to see that that will just take care of it. Yeah, that matches some notes I was looking through that talked about how um, heat travels up. So like you're saying from the pelvis, it would then travel up if it had been there a long time. And I think that's part of the trick is discerning between chronic versus acute. Then in an acute situation, things haven't had time to spread around and go everywhere. But when you've got more of a chronic situation, you can start to get all the stuff that confuses the picture because you're finding things all over the place and, and things are responding now to what's been there. Um, but I'm also thinking for, um, I guess, kind of for clarification, as you're talking about scoping and getting these ideas in the pelvis, for the most part, you're scoping before you've looked at the x-ray, right? Is that correct? Yes. I like to scope before I look at the x-ray. I don't want to have that in my head skewing things. If I, if I see a bad rotated sacrum on the x-ray, I don't want to just assume that that's what I'm going to find because... I, I'm sure that you've probably found it too. If we come in with assumptions, we'll tend to find a way to find that on the scope. And I don't want to do that. So I just want to start with a clean slate. What is my scope telling me? That's giving me my initial hypothesis. Now I'm going to test against that and see if the other parts of the Gonstead analysis are correlating to that and confirming it for me. Yeah, I learned early on that I'm a uh, sucker for a bad x-ray. So um, what I would even do is when they would hang the x-rays in the room, I would tell them, don't turn on the view box. That way I would scope. Even yeah, if it was a patient good. I'd seen a bunch of times, leave the view box off. I would scope and then turn on the view box. Like, oh, yeah, that's right. I remember that now. Because I'm <laughs> if I if that view box is on and I'm looking at it, I'm like, all right, so we're going to find one at L5. There it is. And yeah. you just kind of make it happen. It's like, no, I don't want that distraction. Uh, I like the advice somebody gave of try to find something new every time you scope them. That's and good. if it's not there, it's not there, but try to find something new. Always be looking for something new you might be missing. That's good. I will say one of the things we haven't touched mm -hmm. on um, would be, go ahead. Oh no, no, go ahead. I was gonna change subject anyway. Okay, one of the, well, I was kind of too. <laughs> um, one of the things we haven't touched on was if someone has a really, a really hairy back. Um, so it's really helpful to keep your setting low on someone who has a hairy back. And um, one of the other things we didn't talk about is with the porcelain scope versus a battery operated scope like the Delta T, the low setting on the Delta T, Dr. Ed Carr, who um, developed that, says that that sensitivity is the same as the high setting on the porcelain scope. And on the porcelain scope, we want to take a few seconds to warm the instrument up on the skin, but we're not going to need that necessarily with the battery-operated instrument like the Delta T. Um, but when you have someone with a hairy back, it helps to run it really slow, and it helps to keep the scope on a lower setting. Um, again, with the porcelain scope, if you're getting really erratic settings at the higher or erratic readings at the higher setting, go ahead and turn it down to the lower setting, but high is usually where we start with. Um, but I will say I just had someone with a really hairy back who had a sciatica problem I was trying to figure out. And I was so frustrated because I felt like I was just getting these erratic readings. And I thought it's got to be, you know, that he's so hairy. And he came in um, yesterday and I was ready to tell him, your wife has to shave your back. I just, I really need that. But I had adjusted his L4 on the previous visit. And even with that hairy back, what I found was L4 was the right adjustment. All of a sudden, the scope read so much cleaner now that I had that initial adjustment in the right spot. 
So um, getting a good set on mm. the right spot will also clean that up a little bit. And I think you'll probably say the same thing when you first start to see a patient. Um, the scope looks what my friends and I in school used to call it looks like a muddy scope. And so it just looks a little more erratic, a little harder to treat as you start to see someone and you're adjusting in the right areas. It does just read so much cleaner. And so I always like to get those first few visits out of the way. And then I just feel like the scope reads so much nicer and cleaner after that. Yeah, that was a, I realized that that was a thought I would hold in my head, but didn't, wasn't really cognizant of, and I wasn't passing it on to anybody, but realizing that a lot of times with those, I think to myself, if I can just get one good, good first adjustment, yes. then it'll clean it up. Then I'll know what's really going on. Yeah. And so I don't worry about the fact that I can't read it, but a lot of times, yeah, a new person is doing it going, I don't know what to do. It's just a mess. And you're like, yeah, you got to get that one good first adjustment and then it'll clean up and start showing you what's really happening. Right. Uh, give you a better idea. And speaking of new patients, mm -hmm. uh, speaking of new patients, one of the things that I'll do in my exam, and I know we talked about this at the seminar too, is marking where you get a scope break with a BB on the x-ray. And so it, most of us at the GMI seminars tend to use a bigger BB like you would use for a BB gun. We use a bigger BB and we scotch tape it to the patient's back right where we got the scope break so that we can see that on the x-ray. And that's been really helpful for me. Um, we use smaller BBs to mark things like moles and things like that. Um, but I, I really like having that scope break marked on, on their back. And it, it's a good way to test yourself because I also write on my exam form which level I think that BB is corresponding to. And then I look at my film, I take projection you know, into account um, and see if I'm right. And if I'm off, I'm going right back and repalpating that patient and seeing if I need to make a notation about something and figure out why I may be miscounted. Um, they might have two spinous processes that are really close together or something, or I need to take another look at where the VP is. Um, so that can be a really important, helpful piece too, just making sure that we don't tape the BB to their skin so close to the midline that now we're covering up, you know, a pedicle or something like that. So keeping it off the anatomy, but as close to the spine as possible to eliminate that distortion issue. Yeah. And if somebody dares to do it, um, I think correlating your palpation with your x-ray is one of the best ways of improving your palpation tremendously. Uh, at Life University, we have the uh, the PATS, the palpation adjusting trainers. Um, it's a life-size dummy. They weigh like 90 pounds. And they have a spine in them that's even built to feel like a spine. It moves like a spine. It doesn't like a spine. Wow. But it's got a computer associated with it that shows you where you're contacting. So when you palpate thinking you're on L5, you can look up and see if you really are. And one of the biggest ones that I find with students is I have them set up for adjustments, especially lumbar adjustments. Mm -hmm. And the PAT will say that not only are they on L5, but they're also on L4 and they're also on L3. Wow. And then you explain that when you give a thrust into that, you need them all together. You need to know how to focus that, but still keep it comfortable. And it really is a great training tool for being able to improve your adjusting and your palpating because you know that you're not touching things simultaneously. And actually, it's a great step forward with that kind of stuff. And so yes. um, when you're already out in practice and you don't have that at your disposal, the x-ray is the other great way of doing it. Like you said, you palpate it and then mark it. But this is what I think is here. This is what I think is here. This is what I think is here. Um, C7T1, distinguish between them. Take an x-ray and see if you're right. And mm -hmm. it improves pretty quickly, I think. Yeah. Uh, oh, one thing I was going to add was that um, with, with the pelvis, uh, I thought this was kind of interesting. I was doing some research, finding out who was the first to say what about the pelvis moving. Um, and I believe it was Illy was the first um, uh, experimental scientist who said that the, that the SI joint could move, it could, could misalign. Mm -hmm. um, but he only described it as moving um, superior, anterior, posterior, inferior. He didn't have a rotational component to it. Gonstead was the first one to have a rotational component. So then there was like this dispute between them as to which one was right. And Gansa said, the reason you're wrong is because you have the wrong axis of rotation. The sacroiliac joint's axis of rotation is not the sacroiliac joint. It's the hip. Mm -hmm. And because of the hip joint, that's why it can subluxate into rotation. But that's also why the EXIN component is so damaging to the SI joint, because when you get that rotation of the, of the ilium on the hip socket, it moves the SI joint in a manner that it is not built to handle. And that's why we tend to see the worst symptoms with those levels. 
the worst symptoms and the worst everything else is also going to result probably in the most heat as well because it's really irritated. So we find it up there, we fix it up there, but actually it's a problem that happens down at the hip. And I, I don't know what consequence that is, but I found that interesting. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think so cool. too. One of the things that I said to a patient the other day after I adjusted his SI joint, I said, you know what that's really good for? It's for not needing a hip replacement 10 years from now. And he's in his 70s you know, or his 60s. And so he really liked that idea. Um, you know, we want to make sure that we're keeping that, that joint space even. Okay, so let's kind of, um, I guess kind of to help people out, let's put together a little bit of a list of what are the most common mistakes that people make that might be screwing up their scoping and giving them bad info. Sure. Some of those um, we touched on, I will say um, one that we haven't touched on would be using too much or too little pressure. Um, so if you are using too much pressure, sometimes too, now you're dragging the skin up or down and so you're not marking at the right level. Um, so we need to have just enough pressure that we don't have any kind of um, air in between the probe and the skin. So we want to keep the probe in contact with the skin all the time. And where we can run into some trouble there is on a really narrow neck. You know, we have the, wibes, the probes wider in the neck. And if the probes are not staying, you know, the thermocouples are not staying in constant contact with the skin, then we can have a problem. So um, that would be one. Um, uneven pressure on the probes is another one that we haven't touched on. And where I find this to be the biggest problem is if I am scoping one-handed and or I'm standing off to the side of the patient instead of directly behind them. So sometimes you have a situation where someone is just constantly moving and they're using their hands and you're talking and you've told them, you know, maybe twice already, hey, I really need you to sit still. You can talk, but you, you can't be using your hands and they're still doing it. And then you need, you know, that nice, firm uh, pressure on their shoulder and you have to kind of keep it there so that they are sitting still. Yes. <laughs> and you kind of squeeze a little bit just for extra emphasis. You got to stay still. Um, and so, <laughs> yeah, that was a great idea. <laughs> so in that case, now I'm scoping one handed and now I might have more pressure on one probe versus the other. The other instance um, would be maybe where um, you have a woman who put her hair in a low ponytail and it's not even long enough that you can flick her ponytail in front of her shoulders. And so now you're having to take this little stump of a ponytail and you have to hold it up with one hand and you have to, you know, run your scope with the other one. And now you have unequal, unequal pressure on your probes. And it would have been better if she just left her hair down and you could just let her hair part and you could run your scope straight up with both hands. And so that's a good conversation to have with those women. Um, the other thing that I do in that situation is I use one of these. I have some of these little hair clips that I keep right on hand. I have big ones and little ones. And if I just have all this hair that's getting in the way, I will just twist it, stick it on top of their head, clip it with that clip. And now I don't have to worry about their hair. Um, and I can easily use both of my hands to run the scope. So, um, you know, it's really important that you're standing directly behind the patient and that you're using both hands to run the scope whenever possible. Um, anything that you want to add to that one? Otherwise, you can move on. Um, what was I thinking of? Um, no, that basically that, that is it. I think where that gets to be a little bit of a challenge is when they've got like, um, a unilateral hypertonic muscle and you feel as you're scoping yes. over it, it wants to keep kicking you to the side and you feel yeah. like you have a hard time staying on it. That can be a bit of a challenge. And so sometimes you have to tuck inside that muscle or something. Yes. One of the things that Dr. Thatcher talked to us about when he was teaching us was, you know, you always want to run the scope equally um, equidistant from the spinous process. So keep the spinous processes right in the middle of your probes. But sometimes someone's anatomy is such that he would say you feel like you're on the bumpy road to Dublin, um, which I think comes from an Irish folk song about the rocky road to Dublin. Anyway, if their anatomy is such that it's like bumpy and you can't get a nice smooth glide, it's okay to run it a little bit off center. Another time where we might run it a little bit off center is if someone has a mole or a skin blemish in the way, 
And we don't want that mold to give us a, a false break because you'll get a break just because of that skin lesion. Um, or, you know, if someone has, let's say, a, a skin tag or something where it's a raised up mole, and it might hurt them if I run my probe right over that as well. I'll stick my finger right on top of that thing so that as I'm running the scope, I'm staying away from it and I'm able to veer off just a little bit off center. You'll still get um, the right break that you need. Um, it's going to be better to run it a little bit off center versus going right over that skin lesion. But then another thing that we think about here is if we have a scoliosis. And so it's really important that we keep the spinous processes in the middle of our probes at that point. And that can be a bit of a challenge. And that's another time where it's helpful to have the film in front of you. So that's where ideally you have that AP film in front of you. So you can kind of map their spine out ahead of time. And what I like to do um, in those challenging cases to scope is I like to take my skin marking pencil and I'll just feel where the spinous processes are and I'll draw a vertical line over each spinous process so I have a map and then it's going to be a little bit easier to follow that map I made if I'm running my scope in an upward direction because now I can kind of out of the corner of my eye see where that next vertical line is versus if I map it out and I draw my vertical lines over those spinous processes but now as I run it downward my scope is covering up the map that I just made. So um, it is important to make sure you're following the scoliosis. And in that case, not just running straight up and down because then you're not truly following that patient's spine. Yeah, so this was the main one I was thinking of because when you get that curve, you generally get rotation with it and that causes the mammillary and the TP to start sticking out. And that's how you get that bumpy road to Dublin. And so then just like um, as you get to that area, it makes sense to go a lot slower because if you hit those bumps going faster, you kind of ramp off of them. And I'm from the desert. So it's like it's like hitting the whoops with too high a speed and they just start kicking <laughs> you off. You got to find them. You got to find the right speed when you hit the, those bumps. And so um, so if, if you have that and you've got the rotation coming with the scoliosis, it's better, especially at the apex of that curve, just to go a little bit slower and make yeah. sure you keep the contact as you glide around that corner. And then you yes. don't throw yourself off. Touching on speed too, just in general, if you're going too fast, you're going to be marking at the wrong level. So it is important too not to be going too fast because you know of that reaction time. Yeah. Um, and then we also have the patients who have extra skin, whether it's because they're obese or maybe they had a surgery or whatever else, or maybe they just have that kind of skin and it lumps over itself. So then you find yourself as you're scoping, feeling like you're going in and, in and out, in and out, covering these bumps. Yeah. Um, so how do we, how do we adapt to extra skin and make sure that we're getting a nice smooth glide? Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'll just pull the skin down with one hand as I run the scope um, and again, when I'm counting out which vertebrae I'm on, when they're laying, you know, prone on the high-low table, for instance, I'm again holding, I'm pulling the skin down as I count, especially if it's really bunched up in that CT area and I'm trying to find the VP, um, I'll just, I'll just pull it down. Yeah, because some people do have wrinkly necks uh, and maybe probably yeah. more with age that you mm -hmm. see more of that, but you can get like these neck wrinkles and it can really screw up CT's hard anyway. And then you add that on top of it. It gets, it's really hard to know. Am I finding a read? Am I really getting a, a break here or am I just getting all kinds of white noise <laughs> essentially? Right. Yeah. And if you're not able to glide smoothly because of all of that, one of the things too, um, as far as doing a post check, Dr. Gon said, said, you know, it's easier to get an immediate post check up at Atlas because there's not a lot of tissue there. But if we're talking about, you know, the upper dorsals or the lumbar spine where there tends to be more tissue, we're not going to tend to see as immediate of a change on the nervoscope, you know, right after we do that adjustment. Hmm. And then um, another one would be how we... Um... When we, when we do our repeat strokes, like I agree with you. What I like to do is do one big stroke. And even if I see, think that I see a reading, I just keep going. And I kind of take a mental note that I saw something at T5, saw something at T10, saw something at L1. And then I'm going to go back and look, knowing that I already know they're there. Um, but as we do those repeat things, making sure that we're getting ourselves valid things and not just 
going and going and going. So with a true break, what would we expect to see as we rescope a true break? What would we expect to see versus if it's not really a true reading? Yeah. So the more you run through that area, you're going to bring out a true break more. And if it's just noise, if it's, you know, just the the heat reading, that will tend to go away. And so that's why we don't want to just run the scope one time and make a mark and assume that that's a break. So as we continue to scope over those same tissues, we're going to bring that break out more, we're going to see it more. And one of the things that I like to do after I run it through a few times, if I still don't feel like I have it exactly, is I'll make a mark where I think it is. And now it seems easier than to get it exact. Once I've got that reference point where I think, okay, it's, it's right about in this area, I'll make a mark. And now that next time I scope, okay, yeah, now I've got it exact. And it might be just a, a tiny bit below that one or a tiny bit above that one, but that helps me really zero in on exactly where that break is if I'm having a hard time with it. Yeah, I, I've always, um, so I like my porcelain scope and I always have kept my office cold because I like it cold on the colder side and the porcelain works really well like that. So I'll be scoping, but because of the way the porcelain works, I might have to go over the same area. So I'm doing a strip of maybe six inches long and I'm doing it over and over, kind of drawing out that reading and really getting it clear. And then the patient will almost always say, you're not finding anything because I sure feel it there. And that's <laughs> when I realize I know it's there. So then I tell them, no, I'm trying to pinpoint it. I see yeah. it. I know it's there. I'm trying to pinpoint where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. So, um, but it's just funny. Their assumption is that I don't see it when it's like, no, I definitely saw it the first time. I'm just yep. trying to get it to really show up. Yeah, exactly. One of the other things that we didn't touch on as far as common mistakes that people make is if they're running their scope just straight up, straight up and down, I would say like an elevator, you know, so they're not following the the kyphotic and lordotic curves of the spine so um it's really important you know that you're not just running it straight up and down but that i bring this over here a little bit but that if we have a situation where you know we've got a really hyper lordotic curve that you're actually angling that scope to follow the curve versus just running it straight up and down in that area Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you're basically following the um, the plane line of the disc, which is a really good practice for starting to understand what they are and making sure mm-hmm. you know the plane lines of the disc, because that's essentially what you're following as you're coming through there. Um, also, can you talk about um, drugs, particularly anti-inflammatories, and how they affect yeah. the scope reading? Yeah, so drugs can also affect the scope reading, um, and then sometimes... Um, drugs will cause the skin to get red at a certain area when we're running the scope, just like um, acidic foods can cause the skin to get red or eating red foods can cause that. Caffeine can cause that. So if you're seeing redness come out on a patient's skin, that can be from that. But um, drugs can mess with our scope readings. One of the drugs that I've heard can alter that would be painkillers, for instance. Yeah, because a lot of the painkillers directly affect substance P. And as we talked about at the beginning, substance P in the, is one of the two main chemicals we're relying on to get our, our values. And so if they're muting that, I've always told the patients that it won't change the reading, like it won't make it flip sides, but it will mute it and it can make it really hard for me to find it. And that alone can potentially lead to problems if it's, if it's doing that. Right. Um, let's see. I'm looking through here. Let's talk a little about, um, chronic versus acute. Do you get a difference in reading in a chronic case versus an acute case as far as the reflection and where things go? Good question. I know that's something that has been debated through the years and the general consensus I've heard in the discussions I've had on this lately, (laughs) I think I'm going to pass. Um, the general consensus is that no, we can't tell chronic versus acute, but um, it's also important to note that we are usually dealing with a chronic situation because physiologically, after 24 to 48 hours, the body responds in more of a chronic way versus an acute way. So most of the time, we are actually dealing with a chronic problem, physiologically speaking. There, did I pass? Yeah, I I always thought... 
Yeah, I, I always felt like we can't make a cookbook or a cookie cutter theory on how this works. But right. when you scope a lot of people, you can definitely determine that there is something different about chronic versus acute and, and how they show up and how they read. And so there's some information there, but it might even vary a little bit from patient to patient. So it's definitely not a set in stone. It's exactly like this every time and make, trying to make assumptions off of it. But there's definitely some something there because physiologically it is different. Right. Um, yeah, I'm getting through. It looks like we've covered pretty much all the highlights. So that worked out well. It took us about an hour to do it. Um, yeah, that's the bulk of, of how how we do it. Hopefully, that helps people understand how to um, how to scope and how to get good, decent information out of this. And if anybody's having trouble, it helps them to troubleshoot that. Do you have anything else you want to add that you think we haven't mentioned? I would say one of the things that we maybe haven't talked about is how um, biomechanics play a role. So I do a lot of note-taking on what my scope, for instance, looks like when I run it all the way up the neck and I get to C1. And I might see you know, that it breaks right at, I would call it plus 10. So the heat is to the right of zero and it's breaking right at that 10-point that mark. But if I adjust T2, for instance, I might find that even though C1 initially, before I did any adjustments that day, was showing a break at, you know, 10 points and their atlas motion palpated as restricted and I got a listing on that atlas, if I adjust T2, that might completely take all of that away. So I might, after I adjust T2, I might immediately run my scope up through the cervical spine again and find that now instead of that right break at T10, I see that needle just beautifully sway gently all the way to the left. Isn't that the best? Um, it's one of my favorite things to see on the scope, especially, you know, let's say I've been working on a cord pressure or something, and then all of a sudden I have that day, I got a great set, and I immediately just see that needle sway gently all the way to the opposite side. Um, you know, you might not even have to touch Atlas. So what you did below might just totally take care of it up there. Um, and when I see that, kind of change on the scope, that's one of the indicators that's telling me do not touch that again. And if I go in and I check the motion palpation there, whether I adjusted T2 and it, you know, just helped it from the bottom up biomechanically or I directly adjusted C1, after I see that kind of change on the scope, I'm going to pretty much find that the motion palpation is good. I might never have to touch that C1 again. Um, you know, so be on the watch for things like that. Um, you could have everything pointing to an upper cervical subluxation, even, um, you know, symptomatology that's making sense with maybe rotation of the atlas, vagus nerve, but it was something lower that took care of that. So always keep that in mind. Um, one of the things that Dr. Pam mentioned at one of the recent seminars is she said, a lot of you feel like you're missing your cervical adjustments, but what's happened is what you adjusted lower already took care of it. There is no cervical subluxation there, you know? So if you just say you got a, a break at L5 and, you know, you adjusted L5, maybe you got another one at T6 and you got another one, let's say at C7 at the beginning of that visit. Well, if you don't go back in and check that C7 for motion and check it again for scope um, break, you are going to assume that it still needs to be adjusted when maybe it's just fine. And so I do think that it's really important um, to consider what we're doing lower in the spine and how that may affect it upper in a really good way. Um, also, there, there could be a time where you adjust a rotated sacrum, but maybe it didn't rotate all the way up to C2. So maybe that rotation changed at um, T1. And now, because you didn't take that into consideration, you just adjusted rotated sacrum and you stopped. And now you've got pressure up higher um, that you caused because you didn't take that other rotation into respect. So just making sure that you're always watching your scope, you're always looking at your film, you're always taking the full spine into account and thinking about how what you would do lower might affect it upper. Or there are times where I, I kept getting a right break at 10 points on Atlas and I would adjust Atlas, adjust Atlas. And at the initial visit, you know, initial check on every visit, I'm still getting that same right break at the 10 point mark. Well, that should maybe alert you to the point 
um, where the problem is actually coming from lower. And it's, so if you go lower down and support that atlas from lower down, you might find that that's just going to take care of it. Um, I know that I've seen that situation before where I just assumed it was an atlas problem. Maybe there were some crazy symptoms or something, but the real problem was coming from down lower. And so that's always something to take into an account. Um, and sometimes we will initially fight the fire up at Atlas, for instance. But then once we see that big change up there on the scope, now we can support the body from the bottom up. So there, I mean, I could talk for hours probably just about that point alone. So much to think about. Yeah, that is the thing we didn't talk about is how to know when to stop adjusting, but also how to know when to switch segments. Um, you could be doing something where you've got a C7 and a T2 and a C2, and you do the C7 a couple of times, then all of a sudden there's no reading at C7, but now there is at C2. Okay, so do the C2. You do it once or twice, and the reading goes back to C7. Okay, then go back to C7. And letting the scope be the guide that tells you when it's time to switch between the two. And if there's no reading, don't adjust it, but look to see if the other one's now active. And if, if I scoped it and the C7 and the C2 both had no readings, then we're not adjusting either one. And you just, let it, you just have to trust it to let it guide you that way in that capacity. Yes. And one of the things that Dr. Gonsta talked about is what if you do one adjustment too many? Well, then what you do is you take a new film and you see what you just kicked out with that one adjustment too many. You know, So were you on L5, it was one adjustment too many, you kicked out maybe L4 or L3. Were you adjusting an AS occiput and your condyle block stabilization wasn't as good as it should be? Now you kicked C2 posterior. Um, so those are all things to think about as well. You know, so if you do one adjustment too many, that's your next move is take that new film and see what's different. Yeah, a sloppy C1 adjustment can easily mess up C2, especially if it's too hard. Mm -hmm. And then if you don't have the skills to reach your scope, you may not recognize that what you think is a C1 reading and you need to keep doing C1 as, at that break is actually a C2 break because you screwed up C2 with your C1 adjustment. Okay. And so learning to differentiate between those and knowing that I made a mistake, I got to find it and fix it is also part of the game with the scope as well. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, well, thank you so much for joining me. That was that was great. That hour went by quickly and uh, it really wasn't yeah. hard to fill an hour with just scoping information. So clearly it's something we need to talk about a lot more and do a lot more of and practice a lot more. And I, I think people shouldn't take it for granted. They should always be working to be better at scoping because it seems to me the more scoping you do, the more you start recognizing that you're starting to get information. You don't even know what you're getting or where it came from. So it, there's, it's just amazing what you can get out of a scope when you start using it all the time. Completely agree. I think it's what makes some of the great chiropractors great as opposed to just being good is they're paying attention to detail and they're curious. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. I appreciate thank it. Thank you for having me. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Kristen Fellows for joining me today. I apologize for the time delay between us and I hope it wasn't too distracting, but this was such a fun conversation to record and we could talk for hours. In fact, we spoke for another hour after this recording, talking about different approaches to different problems and working through some complicated cases together. It occurred to me afterward that we all need this. Of course, so we sometimes have the opportunity at seminars and things like that, but it's so valuable, especially in the early years. But here, it was valuable for Kristen and I to talk together about these things, and we weren't even new. Just this last week, I had three different doctors send me cases with questions. Honestly, I love it, and I'm happy to help in any way I possibly can. If you're listening to this and you're stuck with a patient, you are welcome to find me on Facebook or Instagram, and I will gladly help you in any way that I possibly can. I don't want anyone to feel like they're on an island or abandoned, so please reach out and I am happy to help. I just wanted to throw it out there so everyone knows that questions are always welcome. Well, I hope today's episode helped you to think about how you scope and to help improve your technique. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.